You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Interference Archive is a social space, exhibition venue, and OpenStax archive of social movement materials. Our work is rooted in the belief that our shared histories should be held in common and accessible to all. I'm Louise Barry. In this episode of Audio Interference, we're talking to Greg Gillette. The idea of art and politics was really alien to, to, to sort of the art world. What we started to do, which was more sort of do-it-yourself, street-level activism, was really sort of sidelined. It was really considered uh, a throwback, in a way, to the 1920s and 30s. I mean, quite literally, people would say this. Greg is an artist, writer, activist, and a founding member of Repo History and Gulf Labor Coalition. He was also a founding member of a collective called PAD in the 1980s. PAD was political art documentation, and then we added another D for distribution, so P-A-D-D. PAD began with the personal collection of Lucy R. Lepard, a writer, curator, and activist, best known for her work on conceptual art, but also deeply engaged with left and feminist activism. Lepard had accumulated a large collection of political art. People were sending it to her loft in Soho, and it was filling up boxes and boxes and boxes. She came to a group meeting that we had at Printed Matter, which was down on Lisbon Art Street at the time, and said, I don't know what to do with all this. Can we start some kind of archive? That was all she had hoped to accomplish. By the end of the evening, we had a new group. And she's often said, you know, that wasn't what I wanted initially, although she was quite happy that it happened. So um, someone suggested the name PAD at the time, Political Art Documentation, and the idea was born that we would take these materials she had and we would solicit new materials and create this archive, which would be a tool because it would be an archive that people could then use as a resource for how do you do art and politics? How do you bridge the gap between activism and culture? It would show examples. And that's when the idea of the distribution began to develop. It's like, well, we can't just have an archive sitting somewhere. We should be able to pick it up and get it around or publish it. It's all before the internet, remember, this is 1980. Um, And then I think people also said, well, we don't really just want to sit around cataloging people's work. We'd also like to make work. And so the distribution part of it on the end of the PAD was kind of implying that you know we would really be thinking about how we would go beyond just an archive and create work. The group knew what they wanted to do, but they would need a space in which to do it. So I was there for the first meeting. I had come with a friend. The friend and I had been involved in another group called Artists for Survival, which was on the Lower East Side, and it was partly to push back against gentrification at the time, all the way back in 1979-80. And we had access to the Charas building, or El Bohio, which was an old public school that had been abandoned as a school, owned by the city, and then actually kind of given to the community, corner of Avenue B and 10th Street, as a sort of community center. When PAD started to organize that evening, we said, well, I think we have a space where the archive could exist and where we could have an office. In New York in the early 80s, Spaces like this were more common. Artists benefited from the plentiful available space, and the Lower East Side, where El Bohio was located, was still largely a low-income immigrant neighborhood. It made sense for PAD to take up residence in a community center. Many of the group's members were influenced by radical left movements that had emerged in the 1960s and 70s. We were still coming off the afterglow 
in many ways of May 68. There's no question about that. Now, I say that for a couple of reasons. One is I was way too young to be involved in that, but nevertheless, I was involved in anti-war activism even when I was in Pennsylvania. The main people involved in PAD, like Lucy Lepard, Jerry Kearns, had been much more involved in the new left. Um, Jerry Kearns was also part of Amiri Baraka's uh, organization, uh, which was a, which was a fairly militant group. I think it imagined itself at least to be to the left of the Black Panthers, but certainly, uh, certainly imagined a kind of militant c cultural position that had nothing to do with the art world. Because there was still these embers coming from 68, I'm calling it, and we didn't see it then as afterglow, but I think it was already by 1980, 81, afterglow. But because it was there and it seemed still present, and particularly in a place like New York, I think we really truly believed that there was a whole parallel political world that we were part of. And our job was to try to bridge the gap between people in the arts who would be consider themselves really artists, professionals, whatever, but who were concerned about, say, political issues, and yet had no idea how to sort of transform what they were doing into anything meaningful. We were seeing ourselves as the bridge between sort of the left itself as a real counter entity and these potential artists who might work in solidarity with it. But artists at the time didn't necessarily understand what PAD was or what it was doing. The art world was kind of indifferent or even hostile, I think, to PAD at, in the beginning. People in the group didn't really have much affinity with the art world. Nobody really had a job like that was dependent on the art world in any particular way. So there was this kind of disconnect and it was also allowing, I think, this space, this imaginary space of autonomy and the construction of a kind of parallel, let's say, left cultural art world. The materials assembled in the PAD archive were a kind of documentation of this parallel art world. The archive was made up of the materials that Lucy Lepard had collected, and then there was solicitation for more materials, so things would actually arrive at the office over at El Bohio, which is amazing they got there at all, because it was really just a kind of falling down school. There was no, I don't remember if there was a door number, you know, it was that um, basic. And then the, the people who were working on the archives would even go out and like tear posters off the street and bring them and put them in the archive. So this is, it was really kind of a, um, it was not a systematic collection system in a, in a kind of major way. It was very much a kind of do-it-yourself archive. Pat understood they would need to form a committee to maintain the archive. There were really two main characters, Barbara, Barbara Moore and Mimi Smith, and they were members of PAD. They became the archive committee, and they stuck with it. Even after PAD dissolved, they were still doing the archive. They were really committed to it. But they pretty much made everything up as they went along. They were not official archivists, so they developed their own card catalog system and categories. And the criteria, it was so broad that they never really felt there was anything they could reject, except for one thing that they finally decided they, they just didn't meet the criteria. And those were sort of a series of, of like etchings, I think, of, of cats. Those were the only thing that they've told me that they didn't include in the archive. Everything else went in. So if you actually go to the archive, 
you'll discover that there's lots of materials that you would expect, guerrilla art action group, you know, various artists, collectives that had done political work, individual artists who had been doing social work, work, in, work with communities. But there's also a lot of material that you would not expect, very formalist projects, all kinds of traditional art projects, painting, etc. Because again, they really didn't close it down. They had no um, mechanism for filtering it that they put in place. And the statement that I remember, I think it was Barbara made, was that a, an archive is not a qualitative thing, meaning it's quantitative. And I always found that really interesting. Like many collectives, PAD struggled with the issue of how best to organize volunteer labor. It took a long time trying to figure out how to make things work. And it was very amorphous at first. It was a very big group, as these tend to be. And then it kind of shakes out, and you end up with the dozen or so people who are really committed. At a certain point, we broke into committees. We took on many projects, and so the committees reflected these various interests. So there was the archive committee. There was the newsletter committee. There was the programming committee. There was a coordinating committee, and so on and so forth. So in other words, it was a group of committees. The problem was, how do you coordinate all those committees? How do you decide which projects matter, which shouldn't, you know, all those classic problems. And so really, literally, most of this evolved from the bottom up. Most of it, not all of it. But, you know, in practice, all these things were, was mushy. Committees had a certain level of autonomy as well. And members had the ability to start new committees. One of the committees in PAD was the reading group, we called it. And this was a committee that I co-founded with a couple other people. And we would meet in my apartment. We would read theory. We discuss what it meant. At a certain point around 1983, I think the group that had been meeting and reading all this kind of critical theory said, you know, we really should not simply be reading theory. We should also be producing something. We should be active. How would we take this theory and turn it into something? And we didn't, it didn't take us long to, to realize that the focus should be right there where we were meeting, which was the, sort of what they, the real estate agents called the East Village what most of us often tended to call the Lower East Side. Many artists were attracted to the Lower East Side because of its cheap rent, but they began to understand that their presence played a role in changing the neighborhood, often for the worse. A favorite restaurant that was on, I think, 2nd Avenue called the Orkida, probably the only Ukrainian-Italian restaurant in the world where you could get a pizza and pierogi, went, uh, had, had its rent go from like 500 a month to 5,000 a month, like overnight. And so it was, that was, you know, one of the sort of calling cards of what was going on. And then we noticed that all these art galleries were opening up. And when you put it all together, you realize, yes, you know, us artists were clearly implicated in making the community uh, sort of, or making the neighborhood more interesting to a group of people with much more resources than the community that existed and facilitating, to some degree, you know, this, this change towards uh, a gentry as opposed to the people who had been there, which was a very mixed uh, and multicultural community of, you know, Asian people of different backgrounds, primarily Chinese, Dominican, Puerto Rican, blacks, um, Polish. I mean, it was a really wild and interesting place with incredible political history. And... I think we saw there was a lot to be lost um, as just a small group of artists. And so we approached art galleries and started talking about these issues. And most of them wanted nothing to do with 
our analysis, even when we pointed out that you will almost certainly become a victim of this yourself in a few years, which is exactly what happened. Um, that's why in 1983, we had created a big exhibition in El Bohio, a huge exhibition, which was bringing the artists and the community together in a sense to try to assert something against gentrification, let's say. But it was very vague in a way what we were accomplishing. It was a huge exhibition and one of the reporters from the New York Times came and Grace Gluck and, and she um, later wrote, you know, something about, you know, like we were pioneering, right, in, in sort of new territory. And we went back to our meeting and we said, oh my God, you know, we've just added more fuel to the fire we're trying to put out. And so we came up with a second project for the next year, 84, which was to target the art galleries and the art community and try to really raise their consciousness about what was going on. And that's when we came up with Not For Sale, Art For The Evicted. And we designated four street corners in the East Village area, which were boarded up at that time, which many of the street, uh, many of the buildings were, many of the blocks were. We designated these as art galleries. We gave them names. So we had another gallery, which was done in a kind of graffiti style. We created logos for all of them. We had um, the Le Leona Helmsley, because she hadn't yet gone to jail for tax evasion, but she owned a lot of real estate. And uh, today we might have the Trump, for example. Uh, and then we had the Guggenheim downtown, which was an attempt to sort of suggest that what happens is once <clears throat> you know, a region gets kind of gentrified to a certain degree and culture is shifted, almost inevitably, the really large cultural institutions will then locate in that area. But it was all speculation. This was, this was 1984. We invited artists, uh, and it was an open call that we just, we would leave flyers in cafes. Remember, there's no internet again. Um, we would put things in the street. And we invited artists to just submit work about the topic of gentrification uh, and the relationship to the community of artists, between artists and, and the existing community. And we said, you know, make 20 copies of everything, and we will literally go out every week and make sure everything is up and gets, stays up. The reason you have to do it again and again is because it was a, uh, it's like a sort of um, biological zone in which, you know, you put a poster up and two days later another poster's on top of it and you had to constantly fight for a space. We spray painted the names of the galleries and we curated them in a sense, you know, putting these posters up again and again for a period of like maybe three or four weeks. And then we had an opening at the Guggenheim downtown, I think it was maybe towards the end of it, uh, where we had people doing, um, voter registration and talking about, you know, community issues. Uh, and that was the Not For Sale project. Throughout its history, PAD struggled to find funding. Grant funding was particularly hard to come by. Once Reagan was elected, um, the head of the NEA is an appointed position. It's not an elected position. So he appointed someone named Frank Hodsell, who came out of a more conservative sort of background. He basically said, these are the kind of things we're not going to fund anymore. Without government support, the work of raising money for their projects fell on the PAD members themselves. We often would sit around a table like this, licking envelopes, and we would print, you know, dozens and dozens of fundraising letters describing the work we were doing, little logo at the top, fold them up, put a label on it, send it out. 
And we literally would obtain money by people sending us little checks, even cash sometimes in the mail. That was our primary fundraising. We tried other things. One of the earliest fundraisers <clears throat> I was in charge of, which was absurd since I knew nothing about it, and it was a club called Club 57. I think it was on St. Mark's Place, and it was a very kind of hip place, sort of part of the downtown music scene at the time. We had David Wanarovich, who was a painter, his band called Three Teens Kill Four, playing. So we had that. You know, we put out posters, we had people come, and, you know, we spent a few hundred dollars on some, you know, whatever, and I think we, like, lost tons of money. One way or the other, we fumbled around trying to find a way to sustain ourselves. So 90% of the support was really just in-kind labor of everybody doing things. Part of what made this possible is that it was much cheaper to live in New York at the time. You could basically have, like, one adjunct job or maybe two adjunct jobs teaching, and you could get by, and you'd have enough time to make your art and uh, eat, you know, reproduce yourself, feed yourself, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, few of us were you know, married or had any real obligations to children or anything. So it was a very different city in that sense. By the late 80s, many in the group felt that Pad's work had run its course. Political art documentation more or less disbanded in 88. And there were a number of reasons, I think, people, the main reason that people described in the group, and I had, I at that point stopped working with the group, I think a year before or so. The main reasons that people described in the group was burnout, in the sense that people were just physically, mentally exhausted because of trying to do so much without really any kind of, like, support, you know, with very little support. I mean, you know, every couple months you have to lick, like, a zillion envelopes just to get something done. You know, it, 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 it's challenging. And uh, the group wasn't growing in size. That's always a problem. And that's another issue, I think, for all collectives, is if people aren't involved in the early stages, it's often very difficult to get people excited and involved in, in committing to the group later on. And I think also it was, as in all these groups, <clears throat> the inner tensions that are, that are inevitably present begin to sort of accelerate to a point where sometimes it's very difficult to work with people over a long period of time, especially if you're not in, a, in any kind of structured mechanism, in any kind of hierarchical mechanism. My su suspicion is that, of course, we were beginning to see the beginnings of, of sort of uh, gentrification, rents rising, uh, actual material pressures on people's leisure time, and the ability to kind of put it towards something like organizing. The art world had also changed. By 1988 or so, the concept of art being involved in kind of political change had started to grow way beyond PAD. In some ways, the art world had started to think differently about the engagement of art and politics. The Dia Art Foundation mounted a series of shows, including work by Group Material and Martha Rosler. And the 1992 Whitney Biennial was denounced by critics for its political focus. But in 88, the Museum of Modern Art decided to mount a major exhibition of political art. And this was Deborah Y, who was, I think, the assistant curator of the prints and graphics department at the time. And she came to the archive of Pat, and she did a lot of her selection of work out of the poster collection that we had, which was supplemental to the smaller folders and documented materials that are in the archive. Um, and so the exhibition committed to print opened in 88. It was also denounced 
by conservative critics like Hilton Kramer and literally described as a kind of like throwback to the 1920s and 30s, etc. I don't think the Museum of Art ever tried again to mount anything like that. Uh, it had its own shortcomings. There was no section at all on AIDS activism, which was kind of surprising since it was very vital at the time. <clears throat> but otherwise, it covered a lot of ground, the anti-nuclear movement, workers' rights, and so on and so forth, anti-militarism. Um, that opened, though, a door between the MoMA that had already been a little bit there, which I can describe, but it opened a bigger door between the MoMA and PADD. And so since the group was basically failing at that point, it was only a matter of a few years before the MoMA re requested that the archive be uh, included in its own collection. Um, I was not involved in the group at that point. I probably would have tried to push back on that. I know other people did, because it didn't seem like the right or appropriate place for the archive. But ultimately, that is where it ended up. Um, we had hoped that the archive would remain open, but the MoMA insisted that it be closed within the dates that it had been finished. And that was unfortunate, because we really wanted it to be a living thing, and they didn't want to commit the resources to doing it. One of the curious things is that the MoMA itself didn't have an archive until the PAD archive was included. That's when they began their own archives. Uh, I don't think there's necessarily any specific connection between the two, but it's interesting to note that that's the beginning of all of MoMA's archives at the same time, is in this same period of time. And so the idea of the archive obviously had started to become important, you know, to these kind of larger cultural institutions in a particular way. PAD's archive is still housed at MoMA and is available to researchers, although you'll need to make an appointment. Several issues of PAD's newsletter, as well as some posters produced by members of the group, are stored at Interference Archive. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. The archive is collectively run and volunteer-powered. If you like what you heard today, consider making a donation to help keep the archive up and running. Just go to interferencearchive.org and click on Donate. From all of us at Audio Interference, thanks for listening.